Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. It's really great to be back with you. Good morning to all of you watching and listening online to you in our North community. I want to say hey to you this morning. A week ago, I was up north and I was dropping my two girls off at camp and we were staying there for a bit and something began that was unexpected. When we dropped our girls off, there was a large barbecue, which was fine, and it was great. And I said to my son, my little five-year-old son, Noah, uh, there's a barbecue, there's actually pulled pork, there's hamburgers, and there's hot dogs. Uh, What would you like? He said, now I'd like a hot dog. Now, when he said hot dog, he started doing this physiological thing. And I know it, and if you're a parent, you know it too. It's the the dance. I need to go to the bathroom. So I looked at him and I said, hey, Noah, do you need to go to the bathroom? He's like, no, I do not need to go to the bathroom. I'm like, Noah, you're doing this little, nope, I'm fine, fine. So I decided to believe my five-year-old son that he was telling me the truth. And so from that moment, we went to the barbecue and to his horror and his just dashed his world, there were not hot dogs. I had made a mistake. There were sausages. That led to a full-on United Nations intervention meltdown. What do you mean there's no hot dogs? My life is ending. I'm so sorry, son. They are sausages. I don't want a sausage. And he's still doing this, by the way, during this whole thing. Are you sure you don't need to go to the bathroom? No, I don't need to go to the washroom. Fine. Finally, I convince him through every form of diplomacy I've learned that he can eat a sausage. We sit down, we break the sausage in half, he has one bite, and then he looks at me in terror and says, I need to go to the washroom. I'm like, I know. We run to the washroom. As we walk into the stall, he loses it and pees himself. Mmm, love, joy, peace, patience. Okay, so now I am sort of upset, and I looked at him, and I said, son, did you know? He said, I knew the whole time I had to go. I'm like, oh, yes, I know that. And so my daughters are having fun, and we go back to where we're staying, and I change him. We come back. We miss dinner. Dinner's gone now, so I'm really joyful in the Lord. And, um, and there's my son. He's now clean, and now there's an opening day show. That's great. So we go up to the opening day show, and I can tell he's in a foul mood, and I'm not in a great mood either, so this isn't going to go well. And as we're walking up, I tell him, can you just please not do this one thing? And he looks at me, he says, okay, dad. And he does it one, two, three, four times. Mm." And so I'm like, that's it. We're done. You're in a bad mood. You're tired. You haven't eaten. You're going to bed early. And he's like, no. I said, yes, you are. So I grabbed him in one hand. I grabbed the dog in another hand. I said to my wife, you have fun tonight. Say hi to the girls. I'll see them later. And I said, there's a shortcut back to where we were staying. But I, of course, had forgotten that it had been raining for one, two, three, four full days. And so as we are walking down the hill on opening day, suddenly I fall, he falls, the dog falls. We slide down the hill. And at the end of the hill, no word of the lie from this to this, I am covered in mud. He is covered in mud, and the dog's just like, oh, this is so exciting. And I'm just like, oh, my life is so terrible. And so I stand up, and and I'm talking, I am covered in mud. And so now we are walking, and as we are walking, I suddenly realize 600 families are walking to the opening day show, and we're about to walk through them. And so I am walking. I am covered, my backside in mud. My son is walking behind me doing the walk of shame, screaming it's the end of the world because he hasn't eaten, and he's tired, and he doesn't want to obey anything. And the dog's just like, this is so awesome. And so I walk through all these people, and they're like, hey, oh, wow. wow." And I just sort of keep walking. And I keep walking. I get back to the room. He's in a bad mood. I'm 
I'm in a bad mood, I strip him down, I strip down, I take my pants, and it's so caked with mud, I start pouring water, and I forget that this is in the back of my, that's right, for you listening online, it is a cell phone in my hand at this moment. And so now uh, I have dumped my cell phone in water, and so that began another exciting track for me, trying to find rice at a camp in in a kitchen that is locked. So for two hours after this, we look for rice, we finally find rice, I plunge my phone into the rice, praying that my my phone, how will I live without a phone? I do not understand. And so I plunge it in, we sleep, we wake up the next morning, we're refreshed, all is right. And as I take my phone out to plug it in to see that if there is life, suddenly I realize there is a grain of rice stuck now in the plug area so I can't even see if my phone is alive or dead. So desperate, right? that starts another thing, trying to find something. I got so angry, I just got a pin and ripped the thing out. My phone came to life for literally five minutes. Then it did this weird thing, and then the screen died, but it still worked because I could tell through my iPhone it was functioning, and I was just like, this is never going to end. So much of the time in our lives, that is the experience spiritually. Every single thing we try gets blocked and stopped and broken, and no matter where we go and what we do, it seems that there is no way out. And that is exactly the image I want you to have seared in your mind this morning, because that is actually the experience that Paul prays out of in one of the most profound ways. Now, this is week three in our series in the summer of how we pray back the Scriptures, And like I said two weeks ago, and like Dave said last week, when we pray the scriptures, our prayers will be more God-focused, they'll be better informed prayers, they'll help our own biblical understanding, Uh, the scriptures are more redeemed and more godly than our own wants, feelings, and desires, and though our wants, feelings, and desires are important, we need to drink from a cleaner, deeper, more refreshing well than what is inside of us naturally, so we have begun this begin we've begun this journey to begin to pray the scriptures back to God because we know that he's given them to us so our prayer lives will be different now let me begin before i get to paul with just a statement so many of us sitting in this room you online if you are a christian this morning forget the unique profound privilege we have that we take for granted that the rest of humanity does not have If you're a Christian, when you pray, you walk into God's presence without fear because Jesus covers you. Without his covering, the Bible says you would die. But we walk in because we actually know the one who allows us in. And that's why Peter, when he was near the end of his life, wrote this profound description of the church. In 1 Peter 2.9, he says, you, if you're a Christian, you are part of a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people that belongs to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and has called you into his wonderful light. Anyone want to say amen to that this morning? Now, for all Christians, we have this profound ability and also privilege to pray because every single Christian on earth is a priest. That is, we have access to the living God. It was Richard Foster, when he was reflecting on the act and discipline of intercession, he wrote this, when we move from petition to intercession, we shift the gravity of our own needs to the needs and concerns of others. He says, intercessory prayer is selfless prayer. It is self-giving prayer. It is, it is a priestly ministry. And one of the most challenging teachings in the whole of the New Testament is the universal priesthood of all Christians as priests appointed and anointed by God. 
Every single one of us has the honor of going before the Most High God on behalf of others. And this is not optional. This is a sacred obligation, a precious privilege of all who take up the yoke of Jesus. Now, since we're learning how to pray to the Scriptures, and specifically Paul's prayers this summer, let's dive into another prayer and get ready to pray it back over ourselves, our family, our church, the churches in this region and beyond. It's found in 1 Thessalonians 3, if you've got a Bible this morning. It starts like this in verse 9. He says, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? We thank God for you. Now, when I preached this to our young adults a few years ago, and maybe even our morning community, I was struck by this. By human evaluation, all the credit should have gone to Paul. This was a huge personal triumph for him. This is a young church. It's well-established. He was involved with it. And if you know the story of the Thessalonica church, it was being persecuted. And so they had even stood up and said, no, we're not giving up on the faith. Now, Paul points back, though, to God, and he says, listen, it's not about my praise or gratitude or acceptance or my personal fulfillment. I know that the establishment of this church or any church is always an act of God. It is through the divine power of God, the person of the Holy Spirit. The third person of this trinity is the one who always brings people together. He says, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Paul encourages this local group of Christians by telling them that he is praying for them. And he thanks God for them again and again. Now, I said this to our young adult community, and I want to say it to us this morning. How different would C4 be if we, on a regular intentional basis, thank God for the work he is doing in people and through people, and then we went to the people that we were praying for and thanked them for their service. See, this goes beyond patting everyone on the back, no matter the quality of work or puffing people up. This is the spiritual act and discipline of encouragement. See, there is a discipline of prayer we see in this little verse that could transform a family, a connect group, or a church. Paul models this by saying, I see where God is working, I pray into what God is doing, I join what God is doing, I thank God for what he's doing, and then I go to the people and I say, by the way, well done, I'm for you, keep going. I want you to hear this again, write these words down, see, pray, join, thank, tell. See, pray, join, thank, tell. Why does this matter? Because so many people in this church and other churches give their life for Christ and use the gifts for Christ, but no one comes to them and says, by the way, I've seen God working for you powerfully when you're with my kids or serving in our prayer ministry or helping during hospitality or running that connect group. And when you do this, God is so evident. And I want to tell you, I thank God for you. I pray God does more. And I just want to say, I see you doing it. Well done and keep going. Can anyone else imagine how a church would change if encouragement was normal? in the everyday rhythm of a life. So we see this in Paul, and he prays this very general prayer, but the general prayer reveals a discipline. It it reveals a spiritual uh, rhythm. But then he moves to two very specific prayer requests. He says, day and night we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Day and night, does that mean he did not eat or sleep? Of course he ate or sleep. What, what he's saying is this, I, in a regular, intentional way, a focused way, am making sure that I am praying for things that matter. My prayer life is regular, intense, focused, and intentional. Now, if you read this in the original language, it's quite wild. I hadn't caught it before. He is having trouble articulating his feelings. In this language in Greek, he's having trouble. He has such emotion for them. 
He says, I'm praying for you day and night, and, and I want to come see you again. That's prayer request number one. And prayer request number two, God, let me see them again. Why? Because I want to supply what is lacking in their faith. I want to give them pastoral presence and comfort. Now, now, is this lacking because they're rebellious or willful negligence? No, no, this is just about immaturity. Paul knows he's dealing with real deficiencies and shortcomings in this little church, and though they're doing amazingly, and though they've even survived persecution, he wants actually them to grow more and more. And so Paul, so consumed, so excited, so frustrated, prays one of the most powerful, most needed, and most often missed prayers in the whole of the Bible. He says this in verse 11, So now may God and the Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear a way for us to come to you. Now, before I unpack this little powerful prayer, which is the centerpiece, or one of the centerpieces at this table, let me just stop and show you something, whether you're a long-term believer, brand new, you're an early seeker, or you're an outright skeptic. Paul here asks the Father and Jesus Christ together in one act to clear a way for him to go see this church. Now, you miss the scandal and the implication of this if you don't sit in this Paul is Jewish. Not just Jewish, Paul is an Orthodox Jew. Paul is a rabbi. Paul is learned beyond learned. Paul is the epicenter of first century Judaism. And this is what he does. He places God, Yahweh, Elohim, God at the same level as Jesus. In the Greek, he basically says, may God our Father, the same God that met with Adam and Eve, and the same God that Moses hung out with, and the same God that Abraham was called by, and Elijah and Isaiah, may he and Jesus together do something at the same level. And see, if you understand a Jewish person is saying this, you begin to see the scandal. One commentator said it like this, there could be scarcely a more impressive way to indicate the lordship of Jesus and his oneness with the Father. This singular implies that God and Jesus count in one in action and connection. And from the very early time, this is critical, this letter is written in 50 AD. This is 20, less than 20 years after Jesus' resurrection. From this point already, Christians are accepting that Jesus is not just a prophet or some other vert. He is God in flesh. This is one of the earliest articulations of who Jesus is. Why did this matter? Because if you go to chapters today, there are tons of books that say, oh, Christians didn't believe Jesus was God until the 100 or 200 or 380. It's a total invention. No, it's not. 18 years after Jesus is risen from the dead, Paul, a rabbi, is declaring that Jesus is one with the Father and they together are God and they are doing amazing things. This is true Christianity. Anyone want to say amen to that? This is critical. This is why the creeds later would say things like this, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, all things visible, invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not created, of one essence with the Father, through whom all things were made. So Paul confesses the uniqueness of our God, and then he invokes heaven to act to clear away. Now, why does Paul need to pray such a prayer? Like some of you who are more pragmatic go, John, sometimes these spiritual people just drive me nuts. Why do they have to pray about everything? Just get on with it. Like, Paul, build a plan, book a ticket, go to hotels.com, like, change your calendar, stop trying to show off. Why do you, can't you just be practical? Stop praying all the time and just get a plan, would you? Oh, but see, you don't understand. 
you don't understand why there's a problem unless you read the whole book. Because in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, this is what Paul wrote. Oh, we wanted to come see you. Oh, oh, certainly I, Paul, did again and again and again. But Satan has stopped us. Oh, see, this is really actually quite shocking. This actually says that Paul doesn't believe that spiritual conflict is illusionary or fable or mythological. He actually believes it is true and he's experienced it. Paul, think about it, the great giant of missions, the great giant of prayer and theological output, the one caught up into the third heaven, the one who the Bible says was chosen by God himself to show that the non-Jewish world could be saved too, is being stopped by the kingdom of darkness, not just once, not just twice, but again and again and again. Paul could not, Paul was not able to see this local church because Satan had shut every door. Satan had blocked and stopped and closed and clogged every way. The war is real. Satan, and I want you to hear this this morning, Satan is not a toothless lion. If every time a pastor says that, I want to throw a pulpit somewhere. He is not toothless. He can stop a church. He can stop a Christian. He can stop a move of God. He is genuinely at war with those who love Christ. Now, Paul is so aware that this is above his pay grade. So aware that even though he knew Jesus in a way most of us in this room never will, and even knew Jesus' authority, he knew in this moment he needed an intervention and an invasion and an intercession from the creator of all, the one who had already cleared a path, had to come down and do it again. So Paul is invoking the Father and the Son. And never forget, Paul has absolute great theology in this. He knows Satan is ultimately defeated. He penned the words in Colossians 2.15 about Jesus having disarmed the powers and authorities. Jesus has already made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. But the battle was that real. It's not a phony war. It's a real war. And so, let me say this this morning out of biblical authority. The battle was real then and the battle is real now. There is a battle for you, your family, over this church and against the global church. And yet notice that the unseen hurdles that are stopping Paul and his prayer life do not stop him from prayer, but move him to greater prayer. Most times these experiences, when everything goes wrong and we cannot find a way out, leads many of us to discouragement. We give up praying. Many of us actually are tempted to walk away from the faith, call God a liar, or say nothing is working out. But I want you to hear this this morning. Paul says, when things get more difficult, when things even get satanic, that is when I begin to pray in ways I don't usually pray. When things get difficult, I don't back off. I actually dig in. And he says, God, I want you to clear away. Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, the great I am, the conqueror of all, Christus Victus, you come down and you you kick Satan out of our path. Why do you put up with this anymore, O Lord, for your namesake and for your church? This thing is already defeated and we don't want it in our path. We need to go help this local church. So God, it's above my pay grade. So I'm invoking all of you who you are. Trinity, come and kick this fallen angel out because I am done with him and you need to deal with him now. That is a powerful invocation. So when he prays the heavenlies down and he admits that there is a blockage that is above his pay grade and he asks God to set him free in this situation, then he turns his prayers from dealing with the battles in the heavenlies and he turns it to the church and he prays now this prayer which is absolutely radical. Now may Jesus, the Lord, make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. His first prayer for them, notice, isn't about right teaching or right doctrine, but love. 
And he says, may the Lord, may Jesus produce something in us that cannot come from us. And what he invokes here is a type of love that is actually not natural. He doesn't pray for sexual love or friendship love or or natural affection. He prays for agape love. Agape in the New Testament is God's love. It's God-given love. It is actually the DNA of God himself. He says, I'm going to pray that a bunch of broken people who don't know each other very well are going to love each other like God loves himself within the Trinity. And we all know what that love looks like because we read it at marriages. 1 Corinthians 13, agape. Agape is patient. And agape is kind. And you know agape love is around when you're not envying and you're not boasting and you're not proud. Agape never dishonors others. This type of love is not self-seeking or easily angered. It keeps uh, no record of wrongs. It, it Love does not delight in evil. It actually rejoices with truth. It always protects and trusts and hopes and perseveres. Now here's the thing I want to start with. Isn't it amazing that our God is that? This is our God. And he has done this for you and for me, and for us. But he says, now I pray that that divine essence would spread through the Spirit of God among the church. Now, I've done this like 10 times. Forgive me for doing the same sermon again, but I need to do it. So let me work this out. What does agape really look like? Agape is patience, meaning long-suffering, uncomplaining, and enduring. Agape is kindness. Kindness is another word for mercy. You do not give people what they deserve when you function in agape. When love is around, envy disappears. What is envy? Envy is coveting and strife and rivalry. You love to fight for the love of others for yourself, or you desire what they have. Boasting is being a braggart and a windbag and self-catered and calling calling oneself to the center. Proud is vanity. I am better than you because of my looks. I am better than you because of my clothing. I am better than you because of my marriage status. I am better than you because of my education or my skin color or my tribal background or my economics or you fill in the blank. Pride always says I am like God over you because of who I am or what I own. That is never love. Rude is an old, old Greek word which means being against moral standards. Your life, if you're involved in ancient rudeness, you are an embarrassment and a shame to your family, to teachers, to friends, to enemies, and to the church because you actually think behaving shamefully is fine. You guilt and shame others and you humiliate others. Love is not self-seeking. In other words, life is not about you and you reject the idea if you're filled with agape love that finding oneself is the highest goal in human existence. It's not. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. You don't keep an account of other people's stuff that they have done to you or you have done to them. You may not be able to forget what they've done, but you choose by the power of the Spirit not to use it against them. I want you to think about this. Can you imagine 2,700 people in a church having no records of wrongs anywhere in any closet? Can you imagine it? When agape love is present, the record of wrongs, but you did, goes. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. This is about holiness. You run to the gospel. You love truth. You love God. You love godliness. You don't give in. You do not accommodate. You do not swim in evil. You don't joke about evil things. You do not find joy in mass violence or sexual misconduct that the Bible says no to. You hate rebellion. You think hate and racism is from the pit of hell. You don't find joy or teach addiction. Your life does not show everyone that you're against those who are called to lead you. Police, parents, teachers, pastors, 
pastors or elders. You love truth when you're online. You love truth when you're watching TV. You love truth when you're in the movie theater. You love truth when you're in conversation. And you love truth when you're alone. You do not love. You do not get excited. You do not promote. You do not sit or swim in darkness. You love Jesus. You love his teaching. You love what he's about. And you love his word so much that it forms how you think, how you act, and who you are. I love what D.A. Carson wrote, Christian love like this. Mature and deep and unqualified is a rare commodity. When it is displayed, it speaks volumes in a society that gorges itself in self-interest, lust, mutual admiration packs, while it knows very little of love. And now here's where standing in the gap in prayer becomes radical. He not only prays that would agape love spread between Christians, He says that actually, he prays that this love in Christians would also be demonstrated to those who are not Christians, to every single other person. See, this is the death nail in the idea that we're allowed to have holy huddles and Christian bubbles and Christian fortresses. And as society becomes more and more de-Christianed or anti-Christian and we feel the, the urge to run and hide, he says, no, actually, I am praying that the Spirit of God produces such agape love in you that actually you will have continuing personal contact and relationship and connection with all of those who are not Christians. Paul prays for the miracle of love. For good and bad, friend and enemy, no matter ethnic background or religious worldview or sexual view. And remember, I've got to give you the context. This church that he's writing to is under attack. This church is being systematically persecuted for their faith. And so when Paul is praying this, it is one of the most radical and dangerous prayers because what he's actually asking is, Lord Jesus, would you make these people who are actually experiencing wrong injustice to love those that are actually hunting them? You know, I've quoted this quotation many times from John Piper. I don't always agree with John, where John goes on many things. But man, when I read this, I, I just, I want to give it to you again. He said, you know what? He says, I, I don't become excited when denominations or churches react to their lack of growth by adding new programs. I know the reason why so few conversions are happening through my church, he writes in his own context, is not because we don't have programs or staff. It's because we actually don't love lost people. We don't yearn for the salvation that we, we should. We, and the reason we don't love them as we ought to is because love is a miracle that overcomes a selfish bent. It cannot be managed. It cannot be maneuvered. It cannot be brought into existence. It is nothing but an astonishing miracle. He said, examine yourself. Does it lie within your power right now to weep over the spiritual destruction of people on your street? Such tears, he says, only come through a profound work of God. And, and if we want this work of God in our lives, in our church, there will be an agonizing moment of prayer. God, break my heart. And with such agonizing together, God might grant us the needed tears. And here's the damning statement. Without those tears, we will continue to shuffle members from church to church. But few people will pass from darkness to light. Paul says, may the master pour on the love so it fills your life and splashes over to everyone else around you just as it does from us to you. So he prays for a clearing and he prays for pastoral presence and then he he prays for the invocation, the baptism almost of God's love and then he prays for this church's holiness. He says in verse 13, may Jesus strengthen your heart So you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when the Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy ones. 
This, he says, oh God, would you do something? See, to the ancient mind, the heart represented the whole person, the mind, the will, the emotions. And Paul is crying out, oh Jesus, our great high priest, make them holy, let them live like, like biblical right lives. Holy Spirit, give them joy as they obey you in the areas of sex and money and power and doctrine and thinking. Let them obey your word. Let them be formed by what the scriptures say. And notice the connection that Paul makes between holy living and the return of Jesus. Paul knows that if a Christian lives their life without believing Jesus is really going to return, they will never really live a holy life because they will never really believe an account is coming. But he knows that this is the epicenter of obedience. But he also knows that this church needs to be reminded of Jesus' coming because they are being persecuted and things are so bad. That's why in 2 Thessalonians, which Dave preached out of last week, Paul writes these words in Thessalonians 1.6, God is just He's going to pay back trouble to those who have troubled you. He'll give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey, embrace the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord, from the majesty of his power. And on that day when he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed, this includes you because you have believed the testimony we have given you. See, Paul says, listen, I'm praying that you have love for each other and love for God and love even for your enemies. And I'm asking you to hold on and not give in and not compromise. And I want to remind you that those who are attacking you will face Jesus when he comes back during the second advent and there will be no running and no hiding. And if they have not embraced Jesus, there will be great judgment. And he says, continue to hold. And in the middle of that spirit of God, produce a love in them and a holiness in them that is impossible except if God is involved. So Paul prays this little prayer, only a few verses, and it is ground-shaking, it is mind-bending, it is revolutionary. Paul says, I pray day and night. Why did Paul actually do this? Because it's duty and he wanted to prove himself to God? No, Paul fundamentally to the core of his being believed that prayer is the place where life transformation happens where spiritual health can be fought for. He knew it was a guaranteed place of encounter with Jesus and the Spirit, and he knew it's a guaranteed place of power. It's not always mystical. It's not always powerful feelings. Uh, Prayers are not always full of exaggeration or big language, but he makes the decision to pray on a regular disciplined time. And let me just summarize what he prays for, because remember, we want to take the Scriptures and use them contextually in our own lives. Here are the themes that he prays to God. He prays for pastoral presence. At the right time, those who are gifted would be right in the place. He prays for growth and and, and strength for lacking areas. He prays for spiritual battles to be won in the heavenlies. He, He prays for the love of God to be shared among Christians. He prays for the love of God to spill over to seekers and skeptics. He prays for holiness and he prays for the reality to set in that Jesus is really coming back. We can pray all of that over this church. Let me just spend a few minutes unpacking a few of those for you this morning. He stands in the gap for love. Love is the unity and the glue that keeps purity and relationships happening. There was an old Puritan writer so long ago who wrote these words, where love abounds in a gathering of Christians, 
Many small offenses and even large ones are overlooked and forgiven, and sometimes they're even forgotten. But where love is lacking in a church, every word is now viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding, and conflict abounds to Satan's perverse delight. If you want to pray a prayer that is guaranteed to be answered, If you want to go before heaven and say that I am determined not to look like I do today and I want to look like more like Jesus tomorrow, if you want to see holiness break out in our church, you pray for agape love. You say, oh, Father in Jesus, you so send the Holy Spirit upon me in this church. You, I'm asking you to plunge me in this church and you baptize me. You, you literally submerse me in agape love so I can't get out any longer. Help me to be patient and kind. I pray you declare war on envy. Every time I'm boastful or proud, you tell me right to my face in a kind but honest way. If I ever dishonor others, you tell me. Help me not to be self-seeking. If I'm easily angered, begin to change me. If I have a record of wrongs, Holy Spirit, you show me what the record is. Help me never to delight in evil. Make me sensitive to what evil actually is. Help me to rejoice with truth. Help me to protect, trust, hope, and persevere. You want to pray a radical, rebellious thing in our culture? Pray, oh God, I will ask for nothing less than this in my life, in my family, in this church. He says, pray for this. And not only just for among each other, because remember, keeping 2,700 people loving each other is nothing but a miracle of God. You can say amen to that too. But not only that, he says, you have to pray for the lost. He says that this love can't be contained within the bottle of the church. It has to spill over to those we love and like and those we don't like. Like, let me just say this. Right? Like, we all know what we're about to do in the fall, right? Where we and a hundred other churches, thousands of people are going to systematically hear the gospel as we do this whole alpha thing. Okay, fine. But have you even started asking Jesus who you're supposed to talk to about Jesus yet? It over, like I love what John Piper says, it is a miracle in even a Christian's life to even come to the place where we actually believe people around us are lost forever. It is a miracle when the Spirit of God gives us such love that He begins to birth in us tears that are not natural. So we weep over those who are under destruction. And then we say to Him, so now what should we do? All I'm trying to say is this. We this summer should be saying, God, give me the tears for the lost around me. Even if I'm not a tearful type person, so I will be in the position when this alpha thing or whatever else happens, I will bring them to Christ. I will speak to them about Christ. But it will take a miracle that will overcome personality or shyness or Kurt, ask God for the love that doesn't come from you over the lost. Here's the third thing, standing in the gap where Satan is blocking us. See, four, where are we being blocked? I know we're in the middle of the summer and most of our family isn't here. But this, by the way, what I'm about to preach is usually where interference happens and you start thinking about everything except what I'm saying. So please focus. Elders, Where are we being blocked? (laughs) Pastors, in the midst of all we're trying to do to lead this church as we're growing so rapidly, where are we being blocked? Staff members, key volunteers across this whole church, all of us. Where are there blocks that might not just be situational but spiritual or demonic? If you ever come across one of those, this is where you pray this prayer. 
Actually, right now, across this whole church, let's just do this. If you could close your eyes, and I'm just going to pray a simple prayer. Holy Spirit, would you show anyone in this church, anyone up in Port Perry, anyone watching online, where there is a block in their life, in their family, in their connect group, or in this church, or at work, or somewhere else, that is actually supernatural, would you reveal that now? Now, if you have that, you just simply pray these words, God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, clear a path. You can open your eyes. This is a way you need to start praying. You need to start asking God to clear paths that are impossible. But I want to remind you of something because the Bible is so fundamentally clear about things that make us uncomfortable. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the gospel of the light, uh, the, the light of the gospel and that displays the glory of Christ who's the image of God. See, so many of you probably at that moment had friends or family members or prodigals who used to walk with Jesus who don't anymore and you're like, why do they never come to Jesus? Because they're blind and they cannot see. It is not just an intellectual argument. It is not just an apologetic moment. It is a supernatural blindness and heaven needs to be invoked to see, to let them see, to even understand Jesus. See, this is a way that we need to pray so hundreds of blockages across this church are supernaturally removed by Jesus so we can get on with God's kingdom. He prays for love. He prays for the lost. He prays for spiritual conflict to be one. And he just simply says, Lord, may they actually believe the end is coming. So many of us who have been Christians for so long, we're in the great line of 2,000 years of Christians from many generations and backgrounds. Many of us actually don't believe he's coming back. We intellectually believe it, but we don't believe it. Let me read just a simple verse, group of verses that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, we're confident, I'd say, and prefer to be away with Jesus and at home with the Lord, away from the body. We make it our goal to please him. This is written to Christians. Whether we're at home in the body or away from it, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This isn't talking about judgment of non-Christians. This is to Christians. Do not believe that you belong to this world. Not really. You're a sojourner, a pilgrim. You're a temporary foreign resident of another land. You are called to be a holy rebel who fights for a different king. And as we journey through this life, and yes, we enjoy this life, I want to remind you we are called to fear God. Fear doesn't mean dread or anxiety. It means reverent awe. And Paul prays this very powerful prayer. I pray that myself and this church in Thessalonica would live under the shadow of Jesus' coming. And that would produce a holiness I can't do myself. So if you want to stand for a moment across here as we prepare to respond, and I'm just going to pray this prayer to end this part. And I'll stand in the north too for a moment. And let's just pray this. Lord, there's just so much in this. Some of you need to open your hands, by the way, just as an act of openness. Just a physical way of demonstrating your openness to God. And just, Lord, we pray these things. Number one, we thank you that you love us and you're with us. But we pray this stuff. Lord, would you, number one, in our life, 
begin to actually undo blockages that are impossible. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Lord, we pray for love. Um, Baptize us. That's the only word that keeps coming in my head. Plunge us, immerse us into the love that is Christian, that is God. Uh, We freely admit, no matter how old or young we are among us this morning, we can't do this. This is impossible. Produce in us this love. Some Jesus at this moment are saying to you, but I, I haven't been able to overcome some of this stuff for 30 years. Well, Jesus, God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, clear a path and baptize them in that area in love. Pray for this love to spill over towards non-believers in a way that I can't articulate, but you need to work out. And lastly, I pray that in the right type of fear, not the wrong type of fear, we would begin to actually believe Jesus is coming back and we're going to give an account to him. Would that build hope uh, for some among us this morning because they are so lost and feel alone like, and there's no justice. Remind them you're going to make all things right, but, but also help us to live a holy life. Just, Lord, we know this prayer is in the scriptures and you'll answer it. So even though some people among us are resisting this prayer and saying no in their heart, answer it anyway. We just pray this in the name of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. We're going to respond with communion. Isn't it appropriate? And so we together gather on this July weekend. And like I say all the time when we do communion, don't forget, hundreds of millions of people have already done it today. Isn't that an amazing thought? And we are gathering all around together and around the world and we're declaring that Jesus died, that Jesus rose from the dead, that there's forgiveness of sins and that he's coming back and all will be made right. Jesus invites every single one of us. He hosts this meal at this moment. He is present and he invites any Christian who's confessed him as Savior and Lord to take communion and remember his death and resurrection. He invites us to confess sin to him. Maybe you've been convicted. Maybe you need to do that and also celebrate his resurrection, and his return. The Bible says if you're not a Christian, please don't take this because you have not embraced the one it represents. And the Bible gives one other caveat where it says if you're a Christian, and not that you're struggling, but you refuse to obey Jesus these days, you're going to, it says don't take it. You'll drink judgment on yourself. Don't just wait until your love has turned you back towards the one who loves you so much. But this is going to be just a moment where we take, it's going to be past this morning, and you can sit or you can stand or you can kneel when you're ready, and it will just be passed. So let me just pray that God would bless these elements. Though they are just bread and juice, they represent the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And now in this moment, not in the elements, but in this room, would the Lord Jesus meet his people. We claim the scripture that says where two or three Christians gather, Jesus is actually present. So we all welcome you, Jesus, again. Come now meet us in this holy meal that you host. Thank you that you keep eating with sinners. Let's eat together. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.